Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series called Who Is This God? A study of Exodus 34, 6-7. Through this important scripture, we'll learn that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'll be 85 in August, and it's been a long process. And the last few Sundays, we sang that song, We Believe in God the Father, We Believe in God the Son, We Believe in God the Holy Spirit, We Believe in God the Son. And when I think of God now, I just, they're all on my mind. I was saved when I was nine, but I, but I, I struggled, I was mischievous, I was a sinning teenager, I was... So I got married, and everybody thought I was cool. You know, I, I taught junior boys. I was superintendent of Sunday school. And outwardly, I was functioning, but my heart wasn't right. And inwardly, I knew I wasn't, I guess I wasn't totally giving myself to God. And so that went on until I was 28. And once, one Saturday night in October in 1965, Sharon and the kids, four kids were upstairs sleeping. And uh, I don't share this with too many. I was aware of God's presence in the room. You know, I can't explain that, but I would swear in Supreme Court on a stack of Bibles, God was there. I didn't see him. And uh, I've been seeking this experience, you know, and not knowing. And um, and then he addressed me by name, Roger, you are my son. And that just was so affirming because my father, uh, my father left when I was five, came back and then left when I was a freshman for good. In college, he left for good, and uh, I don't remember him praying or reading the Bible. My mother was kind of a spiritual leader, but on that Saturday night, I just sat there and I, I like, um, kind of bathed in that that confirmation in my spirit, and then. About 20 minutes later, the message was, you haven't arrived yet. And that was a bit confusing. That was left out there for another 20 minutes or so, and I'm thinking. And then finally, the message was, you're going in the right direction. Keep going. And I'm going to be with you. Amen. Loving these stories, these testimonies. What a better way to be encouraged in our faith to hear how God is working in other people's lives. Amen. Uh, when I was in uh, fifth grade, my fifth grade summer, um, we had just moved from Minnesota to California. I've mentioned this before. I've been bullied uh, during this move. And uh, I'm a pretty quiet kid, reserved kid, but I just started boiling. Like I just got really angry. And I decided to loot my dad's shed and I got a can of spray paint. And I went over to the school where all this was happening, and I painted in big red letters, this school sucks, all over the wall. Now, after about a month of just living with this guilt, I finally had to confess. 
about it. And as you can imagine, there were some pretty serious consequences uh, that went along with that bad decision in that moment in my life. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But if you haven't been with us, for six weeks, we're doing this series called Who Is This God? And in this series, we're sort of contemplating this question that A.W. Tozer mentions, this quote that he talks about. We've been talking about every week. Here it is again. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, you may not believe that, but just think about it. The way you think about God is going to shape the way you think about your life and how you live your life. And so we want to know, how do I correctly think about God? And the way we're doing that is by studying this Old Testament passage, perhaps one of the most important passages in the entire Bible, where God actually shares with us who he is. In fact, let's read it out loud together this morning. It's not on your notes this time. Uh, Let's read it from the screen together, just this reminder. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Today, I have the privilege of speaking about that last section there that yes Yahweh is forgiving he is also merciful it's the same word used there but he's also just and I'm sure if you've been with us throughout this series you're wondering like what in the world is going on with the end there this whole idea that he punishes children for the sins of their parents what's up with that How can Yahweh be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness if he then punishes kids? It's a great question. And we are not going to shy away from it because we do not pick and choose scripture, right? The Bible, all of it, is inspired by God. It teaches us about who God is and who we are. And so we don't skim parts of the Bible. We don't cut out parts of the Bible that we don't like. We don't live in the reality of our world today, where we get to pick and choose what God says and what we want God to say. We don't create God into an image that we want him to be. We want to know God, who he is, fully and really. Besides, if you end up doing that, which so many people today, you'll end up with a God of your own wishful thinking, a God who isn't real, not the God of the Bible. And obviously, the nice thing is if you create your own God, he will agree with everything you agree with. He will approve of everything that you approve of. The problem is that's not the real God. Now I gotta tell you, I know this is gonna be weird, but I'm kind of excited to talk about this passage because it's just so important for us to understand this part of who God is because while he doesn't look exactly how I might want him to look or how our culture wants him to look today, not, not at first at least, when we start to realize this aspect of God's character, I think we get a better understanding of who he is instead of trying to make him into something he's not. And so today, let's talk about God's judgment or God's wrath, as it's sometimes referred to. For a lot of people, this is the issue that creates the biggest obstacle for their faith, right? I heard someone say, give me 10 minutes in an eraser, and I'd get rid of all this in the Bible. But you can't. And we honestly shouldn't because while it's a difficult doctrine for us to digest today, it's one that is absolutely essential to knowing, loving, and worshiping God. In fact, here's the question I'm going to want you to have in the back of your mind as we're walking through this whole day today. 
you're following on your notes, do I really want a God who doesn't care or act against evil? Because friends, that's what's at stake here when we talk about God's judgment. His actions against evil are this part of his character. So let's talk about this. I'm going to show you five things we need to know about God's judgment today. Before we do that, though, can we pray? Lord, there's no doubt this is a difficult topic to talk about, and yet one we need. One we believe is still a part of who you are. One that can show us your glory even more. So I pray you'll help me. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to set aside any sort of cultural distractions that have gotten in place of the truth of this. And help us to love and worship you even greater after today. In Jesus' name, amen. So five things. The first thing we need to understand is that God's judgment is present in the Old and New Testaments. The Bible speaks of God's wrath more than 600 times. I'll just use one example from the Old Testament. This is from Psalm verse seven, chapter 7. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. This is all over the Old Testament. We read about God's wrath. This is nothing new to you. What people say today, however, is, well, that's an Old Testament thing. God gets nicer in the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene. He shows us the love of God and the mercy of God. He's meek and he's mild. That's true, but it's not totally true. In fact, Bertrand Russell, have any of you ever heard of him? He was a famous atheist and skeptic. He once said, I'm quoting, I don't believe in Jesus because Jesus so clearly believed in the wrath of God. He called this the one profound defect in his character. I love that, right? Even a skeptic atheist understands there's no separating the God from the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. Last week, we talked about how God is loyal love, right? This is the main theme of Scripture, but God's wrath is a repeated theme in Scripture as well in Jesus' teaching too. In fact, it's one of Jesus' most frequent themes. One example of this is in John chapter three, the same chapter where God says, He so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And not only does Jesus talk about it, he actually demonstrates it. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? Towards the end of his life, he walks into this temple full of thieves, and he creates a whip, and he kicks them out of the temple. And Brian reminded us, this wasn't just some like random thing Jesus chose to do. He didn't just lose his temper. He's showing us who he is as this righteous judge. Now, I grew up with flannel graph Jesus. My Sunday school teacher was 75 years old. Her name was Mrs. Phyllis. We loved her. But we never got this picture of Jesus, right? This was the pictures we would get of Jesus. And that is part of who Jesus is. But he's also this, right? He is a righteous judge. And friends, if you're on your notes, Jesus' testimony to God's judgment was central to his message. I mean, seriously, one of the reasons Jesus came was to warn people, right? He came to drink the cup of God's wrath himself and to warn people that this day of judgment is coming. Second thing to understand about God's judgment, if you're following, is that God's judgment is an expression of his goodness. Let that sink in. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, right? Like jumbo shrimp. 
goodness and judgment. But bear with me for a minute. Let's just take our passage, for example, in Exodus 34. Remember the context of this passage? Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me your goodness. God promises, listen, you can't see me fully face to face because I'm so holy, but I will pass my goodness before you. And he does so, but what he doesn't say is, Moses, I'll show you some of my goodness and then some of my badness. No, he says, I'm going to pass all of my goodness before you. And so that means his judgment is part of his goodness. His goodness would not be complete without it. How is that possible? Because God's judgment grows out of his love for us. Again, try to wrap your mind around that. I'll explain with an example. As a dad, if I love my kids, I will not allow them to do certain things that I know will harm them. I don't want to see things like lying and cheating and bullying in their lives. Now, the question is, when I get angry at those things in their lives, do I want to punish them? No, I want to warn them because I love them. I want what is best for my kids. And so there's consequences to their actions. In a similar way, God is angry at sin and evil. Why? Because he can't wait to hammer us? No, because he loves us. He created this world and us, his people, to be these perfect, good creations. Sin entered the world and destroyed that. And because of this, there is no way that a good God can turn a blind eye to sin and evil. Yahweh does not blink at sin. He doesn't go, oh, well, kids will be kids. Never. Never. Yahweh is a good God, and because he is good, he is a God of justice. Friends, if you're following, God's end goal is a people and world with no evil at all. And so just think of this. Yahweh's justice is never about retribution or payback or some vendetta he has against people. It's always towards the end of this healing and renewal of the world that he created in the beginning to be good and to be perfect. He is moving towards a perfect union with his people and with his creation. But because sin is the byproduct of evil and Yahweh is after a world with no evil, he's working towards an end to things like sex traffickers, cruel dictators espousing ethnic cleansing, abuse, needless school shootings in elementary schools. He's wanting to put an end to all violence, He wants to put an end to racism, the exploitation of women and children, whether they're born or unborn. He wants to put an end to anxiety and depression and mental illness. He wants to see an end of divorce and betrayal, the breakdown of the family. He's after a world with no sin and evil at all because he's a good God. Now, how many of you want to live in a world like that? You can't unless there is judgment on the evil things that are ruining our world currently today. Why doesn't he come then? Why not do this now? I'll get to that in the end. This idea, though, is all part of what we call the gospel, right? Sometimes we reduce the gospel down to my individual forgiveness for sin. That's part of the gospel. But listen to how John Mark Comer puts it. He says it as well as anyone I've read. The hope of the gospel isn't that Holocaust survivors will stand next to Hitler for eternity or that a victim of domestic abuse will live forever with her husband. 
The hope is that there will be no Hitlers, no women thrown across the room in anger, no slave traders, no genocidal maniacs, no suicide bombers storming into crowded markets, no predator drones flying over your house as your five-year-old cowers in fear, nothing and nobody who is openly hostile to the way of Jesus. Because God will put an end to evil once and for all. The judge will finally judge. And listen, you know this is true. We want justice. We crave for justice. We ache for justice deep in our bones. This is what it means that God's judgment, his wrath, his his, uh, justice flows out of his goodness. He is working towards, as a good God, putting evil and sin and injustices to an end. No more exploitation, no more greed, no more hatred because of his love and because of his goodness for humanity. Now just be honest with me, every time you see another story like we did last week of a senseless shooting in Buffalo, every time we see more innocent people being buried in Ukraine, I mean, just this week, my dear aunt, 95 years old, I get a Facebook message from her from scammers who hacked into her website. Every time that stuff happens, what goes on inside of you? Something's got to be done about this. This isn't right. And if he weren't a good God, he would not put these things right. But because he is a good God, because he is just, we can look forward to a day when his son, Jesus Christ will return as the judge of the world, banish evil, and lead humanity into a glorious new beginning. Why not do it now? We'll come back to that later. But understand, this is as much a part of the gospel as your individual forgiveness from sin. God is a good God, and he will banish evil once and for all because he is also a just God. Third thing I want to say about God's judgment, if you're following, is God's judgment of generations is often misunderstood. You may be with me right now, like, yeah, I understand how goodness and judgment work together, but there's that still that weird thing about him punishing children. What could that possibly mean? Well, for starters, it can't mean what it looks like at face value, at least not in our English translations, that Yahweh punishes children for their parents' sin. You think, how do I know that? How can I know that? It says it right here. Here's why. Later, Moses makes the exact opposite point in Deuteronomy 24, 16. He says, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Is Moses contradicting himself here? Hang on, let's keep looking. See, you always use scripture to interpret scripture, right? What does the rest of the Bible say about this? Ezekiel talks about this. The Israelites were believing this very thing. These kids were believing. We're being punished right now because of our parents' sin. They even had this little phrase. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Have you ever eaten something real sour? It just That taste just sticks in your mouth. This proverb was basically like, why are we suffering from our parents' consequences? It's exactly what our Exodus verse says. Look at what God says to that. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. And then Jesus picks this up. In the Gospel of John, John 9, the disciples thought the same thing. Kids are punished for their parents' sin. He says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So listen, something doesn't mesh here, right? With what we're reading and what verse seven says, is God contradicting himself? The answer, of course, is nah, nope. And let me show you why by offering three alternative scriptural understandings of this concept. If you want to understand this difficult concept, we have to let scripture interpret itself. First, if you're following, is that this possibly refers to children who purposely continue in their parents' sin. In other words, it's referring to generations of children who repeat their ancestors' rebellion against God. They're going to get the same thing their parents got. You see this in, clearly in the Ten Commandments. The second commandment, God warns people, do not make idols and bow down to them. And as an explanation of that, look at what he says in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now here's the key, of those who hate me. You see the main difference here? He punishes children that continue in the sin of idolatry of their ancestors. This multi-generational repetition of sin to the ancestors is really what the book of Genesis is all about. Have you ever read Genesis? It's a mess. I'll give you one example. Remember the story of Abraham, where he sells his wife off twice to people as his sister, and they take him, and they're going to marry her, and all these bad things happen. If that wasn't bad enough, guess what? His son learned that. Isaac does the exact same thing with his wife. If that isn't bad enough, guess what? His son does that. He deceives his father, pretending to be his brother. If that's not bad enough, guess what happens? Jacob's sons do that too, selling off their brother, then lying to their father about it. Thankfully, at the fifth generation, Joseph breaks this generational curse. Those who continue in their parents' sin will ultimately receive the same consequences. And that leads us to the next understanding of this difficult verse. If you're following, parents' sin does have consequences for a child's future. Amen to that? I mean, this is the most obvious reading of this verse. Why I have verse 7 from the New Living Translation on your notes there, because I think they get it right. Can we read that out loud? But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. We all know that's true from personal experience. Like, listen, if I embezzled money right now from the church, would my children and their children suffer the consequences for that? Of course they would. If you cheat on your wife and you leave her for someone else, will your kids suffer from that? Of course. If dad and mom choose to get a divorce, will children suffer from that? They will, even though our culture today says, oh, there's no problems with divorce. We all know the truth. There is a long-term effect on those things. If your dad was an alcoholic, I could go on. And on and on. I'm sure we all have this in some form or fashion in our own lives. We bring it into our marriage and then we put it on our kids. I was thinking about this in our family. I don't know if this is a generational sin, but we like sarcasm. Everyone in my family really likes sarcasm. Sarcasm can be a, a funny thing at times, but it can also be a biting thing at times. And there's times when I notice our son being sarcastic and I go, where did he get that from? Right? <laughs> We pass on through generations that affect our children and then their children. And that leads to the third key of understanding the strange text. If you're following, God's judgment is most often a passive giving over. 
Theologians call this the passive wrath of God. In other words, yes, there are going to be times when God actively judges people. We see this in the Bible, right? Even with Adam and Eve, he kicks them out of the garden. If you read that story, there's so much grace in that as well, though. I mean, there's lots of stories like that, but for the most part, I would say two-thirds of the time, if not three-fourths of the time, God's judgment is passive. He hands people over to what they already want. I'm reading the book of Judges right now. Very depressing. But you see the ongoing theme, right? That people worship God, they turn their backs on their God, they begin to worship the, the Baals, and they're being destroyed by the nations, and you literally, it says, God handed them over. If that's what you want... Go ahead and continue in that way. But because God is also compassionate and gracious, when they cry out to him, what does he do? He rescues them. He sends someone to rescue them from them. Time and time again, they turn their backs. He gives them over. They cry out because he's compassionate and gracious. He returns to them. Paul picks up this theme in Romans 1, truly one of the most haunting passages in Scripture. Paul essentially is saying, listen, right now humanity is going down this downward spiral of sin. And no matter what God has tried to get people's attention, they turn their backs on him. And so we read these words in Romans 1 verse 24, therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their heart. That is God's judgment. If that's the path you want to choose, Eventually, I'm going to give you what you want. And it's led to this place we are today where people call good things evil and evil things good. You see, in the end, God will give people what they want. He won't force himself on anyone. Maybe you don't like that, but there's no love without free choice. And God gives humans a choice. And this is what many people really define as hell, right? God eventually giving people over to the desire to have nothing to do with him. How could a good God send people to hell? He doesn't. He gives them what they're already choosing, which is a life apart from him for eternity. The fourth thing we need to know is that God's mercy outweighs his judgment. Finally, some good news here. We see it in Exodus 34, right? On the one hand, you've got mercy to thousands of generations and judgments to the third or the fourth. I I picture it like this. Some of you have probably seen uh, this statue before. This is, she's known as Lady Justice and she's holding up the scale. And in this verse, we're told, if you look at that scale, 250 times factor is mercy over judgment. So it's way out of balance here, right? That's what's being described here. James, Jesus' brother, picks this theme up in James 2.13. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Even though God is completely holy, fully justified when he judges sin and evil, he is beyond patient. He is beyond merciful because of everything else we've learned in this series. Yahweh, Yahweh, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, loyal love. I asked you the question, why not come and judge the world right now? Here's Peter's answer to that. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Fifth, and most importantly by far, God's judgment was laid on Jesus as our substitute. 
If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, here's a basic rundown. People sin. They turn their backs on God. God will not turn his back on them. He continues to pursue them. And part of that is he institutes what's called the sacrificial system. And real simple, that just means if you sinned, you would go to the temple and you'd bring a perfect lamb to the temple. You would lay your hand on that lamb and you would say, I deserve what this lamb is getting. And then you would sacrifice that lamb as your substitute for your sin. 2,000 years later, John the Baptist is walking down the street and sees Jesus and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came partly to drink the cup of God's wrath on a cross as your substitute. The perfect lamb of God, taking away sin once and for all. But this is tremendously important here. I want to spend a little time on this. Don't think that Jesus is some passive victim here. There are people today who will call the cross divine child abuse. John Stott, if you want a book to read, read The Cross of Christ by John Stott. He says it correctly. The cross is the father and the son working together. For much of my life, I've heard people say, the father poured out his wrath on his son. Now, I'm not sure that particular language, or at least the way we think about it, is correct. I don't think God the father is sitting up on heaven when Jesus is on the cross and going like, yeah! New Testament writers never say that. He poured his wrath out on his son. Think about it. The father wasn't angry with Jesus. Jesus was his son whom he loved, with whom he was well pleased. The father and the son are angry at evil together. Both are agonizing over the rippling effect of sin in this world and in our lives. And so the cross is the father and the son working together in tandem to bring mercy and justice together once and for all. Yes, on the cross, God's judgment was placed on Jesus in order for him to be able to absorb all of the sin and judgment that we deserved and that evil creates. But this was done out of love, not anger. Do you understand that? The cross is where God's judgment and his love meet together to rescue human beings and provide life on the other side of death because you can't rescue yourself. If you're following on your notes, this is one of the greatest mysteries of all time. The just judge also becomes the justifier. Incredible. He is a good God. So good he would give himself for your sin and for your life. I mentioned the spray paint story, remember that? Consequences? One of the consequences, of course, among others, was that I had to go back to that school and I had to repaint the wall. So I got my paintbrush, I got my paint roller, I got the paint, and I start painting when all of a sudden my dad shows up with his paint, his paintbrush, and his paint roller. He didn't need to do that. It was my sin. In a similar way, Jesus shows up as God, Emmanuel, with his paint and his roller and his paint can for you and for me. Romans 5 is really one of the most important scriptures describing this. It starts this way from Paul in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Now, would you read verses eight and nine on your notes out loud with me? It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Then it closes this way in verses 10 and 11. For if... While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God's love is why Jesus came. God's justice was satisfied because of his love for us. Although Jesus took God's wrath for humanity, never think of the cross as anything less than God's incredible love for his creation. J.D. Greer says it this way. I hope you hear this. No one wants you to escape God's judgment more than God. He proved it. But you must choose it. And friends, choosing begins, as we just saw, through repenting. When I say the word repent, I don't mean feeling guilty or shameful. I'm talking about a genuine recognition, a genuine remorse, because you realize deep in your core, yes, I am God's enemy. He is holy and perfect. I am not. I have sinned, and I need mercy. I need forgiveness for my sin. Don't hide it. Don't lie about it. Don't try to excuse it. Just bring right to him. Bring it to him. Friends, this is really the crux of today. I hope you get this. If you're falling on your notes, here's my question. Will I repent of my sin and call evil what God calls evil? You catch that second part? Because this is where we're living today, right now. We live in a culture that has abandoned the Bible, that has abandoned the ethics of Scripture, in favor of what we simply would call cultural cultural relativism, right? If it's good, if it sounds good, that doesn't seem right, that doesn't, we just get to pick and choose whatever we think is right and good. But at some point in your life, you gotta get to the point where you say, I trust the Bible. I trust that what God calls evil is evil. I trust that what God calls good is good. It's a tough decision these days, especially for young people. The Bible has never changed. It's always been here. It's always been an anchor. Our culture is ever changing. So how do you know? How do you know what our culture is saying is trustworthy if it's constantly changing? If you're willing to do that, if you're willing to repent, the next question I have for you is, will I receive the mercy of Jesus as my substitute in faith? It's not just about acknowledging sin. It's not just about acknowledging evil for evil. It's about recognizing, behold, the Lamb of God, who didn't just take away the sin of the world in some general sense. He took away my sin. And the only thing that I can do is receive that through faith. That's all he asks. He is a good God who went to the cross out of love for me. And I receive that. And say, Jesus, take my sin upon yourself for there's nothing that I could do. I deserve nothing. 
but you have given me everything. And at that moment, if you've done that, if you're doing that even today, even right now, here's his promise to you in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Can I get an amen to that? And at that moment, when you do that, the good news gets even better for you. One more time, if you're following, we are now empowered by the Spirit to walk in freedom. Don't stop the gospel at the forgiveness of sin. The gospel, as we just saw in that video, means you can break free from sin that even goes back for generations. You can walk in a new way of life, in freedom and truth. Not only does Jesus forgive, he will empower you now to live a different way. Do you have any idea of what a staggering reality that is? Your sins are gone as far as the east is from the west. You become a full son or daughter. To the great creator God, Yahweh, there's nothing that stands between you now. All your sin is gone forever. And now you're set free to share that with other people. To be a sent person in this world who says, listen, I've got the greatest news I could ever share with you. Your life doesn't have to end here. It can go on forever and forever and ever. Friends, we're asking the question, who is this God? He's the just judge who also justifies so that all may come to him and be set free. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, as we've sung before, stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene who out of love for us offered himself for us so that we do not have to face judgment but we can be made whole and clean. As hard as it is to think about your judgment, may we always put the lens of love over it for that is who you are and that is what you've done. If there's anyone here this morning, anyone who your spirit is encouraging, prompting. May they give them, may they give you their life. May they come to you and repent and say, I know I'm walking the wrong direction. I know that I've been calling evil things good in my life. I need a substitute because I can't do it myself. Put your faith in Jesus, friend. Look to the cross. Because for God so loved not just the world, but you, that he sent his son so you may have eternal life. Receive that life even now. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.